When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 85 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast, with a new episode released every single day. You get an extended interview like this one every Monday, and short four or five minute daily episodes Tuesday through Sunday on a show that I call This Day Rocks. Now, if this is your first time listening, then please find Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app or player of choice and subscribe directly on there so you don't miss a single episode. As I said, one comes out every single day and you can only get all those episodes on the Vintage Rock Pod feed. So please do check us out and subscribe separately on there, please. Also check out the YouTube channel as well. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube and you'll be able to find everything you need with all the interviews, short clips and things like that on there. Now, a huge thanks to everyone who commented on last week's big interview show with big country guitarist Bruce Watson. He was answering your questions about the 30th anniversary of the Buffalo Skinners record. So, a huge thanks to Den Hayward, Svein Hothaug, Andrew Hogg, Ted Kearney, Steve Jones and Dave Stewart. Thank you so much to everyone that got in touch following that brilliant interview. 
Now, today's interview is with a lead singer of a fantastic American rock band from the 60s and the 70s. They released six platinum and seven gold certified records between 1969 and 1976 and scored two number one singles in the US as well. In the States, they were seen as the precursors to hard rock and heavy metal sort of thing. They were famed for their blistering rocking shows and were promoted as the loudest band in the world. They toured with Led Zeppelin, as you'll hear, and famously sold out Shea Stadium quicker than the Beatles did. I'm talking about the brilliant Grand Funk Railroad and their singer, Mark Farner. Now, in this interview, you're going to hear about the crazy early days where the name caused some confusion, why they were too good to carry on touring with Led Zeppelin, the successful albums and singles, why Mark wanted the group to remain as a three-piece, his friendship with Jimi Hendrix, and touring with Ringo Starr. So much, it's a packed interview. So, I hope you enjoy this fun chat with former Grand Funk Railroad singer, Mark Farner. Well, let's take you back uh, just a couple of years ago then, shall we? 1969 or so. Um, we'll start off with the, the Atlanta Pop Festival. It was just a couple of years ago, of course. Um, I yeah. mean, that was that was such a big deal. It was such an incredible festival that got put on. Uh, some amazing acts were on that bill, along with Grand Funk Railroad. Now, that was a huge thing for you guys at the time, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. It's like we didn't have a record deal. Nobody had ever heard the words that you had just mentioned. Uh, and and the guy who brought us on, the MC for those three days, he had three days, brother Paul, and he never got it right oh, in no. three days, three times. I'm thinking there was a lot of drugs going around there at that festival, and maybe just being among that, you, you know, those people there. Uh, it was rubbing off on him. He would say Grand Frank Railway or something. I mean, he would never said it right. Uh, but we made sure that by by the third day, they knew who Grand Funk was. Absolutely, absolutely. And everybody did. I mean, you kind of just burst onto the scene, didn't you, at that stage? And um, and what you were doing as well at that time, it, it was it was different. It was raw. It was noisy. It was it was loud and exuberant. I mean, what was it that made that kind of music come together for you guys? Because you were only a three piece at this stage. So, so what was it that drove that kind of music from you guys? Well, I worked at West Amplifiers, okay. which uh, was a, the amplifiers that we used on stage. And Dave West, God rest his soul, he uh, he put together this amplifier and he and he he was looking at the schematics one day and he said, "Holy shit! I I I found out what I did wrong." And I said, "What are you talking wrong, man? These things sound great." He says, "I wired this this wire is backwards in this Dynaco." He was following because he was trying to reproduce something and then add some of his own electronics to it. And I said, man, don't touch that thing. You can fix all the rest of them, but don't fix mine. <laughs> he said, really? I said, yeah, man, for guitar, it's perfect. And and Mel, uh, you know, he liked to, this bass turned to 11. And, and that's where he got his sound. But uh, that was what helped us appear that day. Because in spite of uh, on the way to Atlanta, driving down there with a U-Haul trailer behind the van, and rolling it down through the ditch. It came off. Uh, all the equipment was, some of the, the uh, transformers were ripped completely loose from the chassis. When we got to Atlanta, all of the uh, 
other roadies for the other bands saw that we were in a pickle. So they they jumped in there, and there must have been 12 different roadies uh, putting our stuff up on the stage and soldering wires together, uh, wire ties and wire nuts and duct tape. The Transformers sat on top of the cabinets, duct taped to the cabinets wow. just so they could make the length of the wire work for them. Oh, it was something else. But they, for the, for some reason, 110 degrees in the shade in Atlanta, Georgia, they were working fine that day. Incredible. Yeah. that's And that helped us come on, you know, big and loud. Absolutely phenomenal to, to see everything pull together and get you guys on the map like that. It's incredible. I mean, just talking about that festival, there were some other incredible acts on there, Janis Joplin and Joe Cocker and oh, Creedence Clearwater Revival. I mean, the, the names just roll off the yeah. tongue. I mean, did you get to um, mix backstage with these sorts of people? No. No. <laughs> that was a shame. <laughs> we, were, we were scared shitless, brother. We were just, you know, like, uh, uh these guys were all superstars. We were just a garage band, 20 years old from Flint, Michigan. Mel was 19. Mm -hmm. uh, the bass player was 19, and the drummer and myself were were both 20. Incredible stuff, incredible stuff. And and another early story to talk about is probably one you spoke about a million times, the whole Led Zeppelin tour. I mean, you played, what was it, two dates on that tour and before you were unceremoniously dumped whilst you were on stage, you were told to get off and get out of there. What, what happened yes. with that one? Well... The first night we were at the uh, public auditorium in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, the people were loving it. They, we have played, I mean, at this time in our lives, we played in Cleveland doing the Upbeat show, uh, which was a television show that was a regional show. So it wasn't just the, in Cleveland. This this was, uh, it went to over as far as Chicago and and over to New York and and uh, so Pennsylvania, it, it got around. And uh, the people that showed up at that concert, a lot of them were our fans just from us playing around that area. And they loved it. And they loved that we were there opening, you know, for Led Zeppelin and that, that it's going to be a good energized concert. And I'm telling you, it was energized. Wow, was that energized in Cleveland. The following night in Detroit at Olympia, another big, massive crowd. Uh, we're on stage tearing it up, and the people were loving their hometown band. Here they are opening for Led Zeppelin, this big band. Uh, and Peter Grant, the manager uh, for Zeppelin, came out and told our manager, Terry Knight, to pull the plug, get him off the stage, he says, or I'm going to pull the plug. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Get them off because we had the crowd up. Brother, I'm talking. They were with us 100% and we were fixing to go into inside looking out. And that would have just brought the house down. 
There'd be no way you could follow that song. There was hardly a way for them to follow us, even the way we left it. And half of the auditorium had emptied out. And there was only half the people that, you know, it was sold out. And then uh, after an hour and a half, after we got off the stage, Terry came out and said, uh, because of contractual obligations, uh, Grand Funk has to leave the stage. And, oh, man, the people were booing, hissing, throwing wine bottles, beer bottles, whiskey bottles. Oh, my God. Uh, they didn't want us to leave. And I, and we didn't want to, but we they pulled our plug and we had nothing left. Drummer, he, you know, he, he was the only one you could hear, but you couldn't hear him very good because uh, the power was gone. So when we went off the stage, uh, the fans were disappointed, disgruntled fans. and uh, But it did give some space for Mel, the bass player, and myself to go out into the audience and sit at the center of the auditorium. About midway, we were just behind the people in front of us. So we watched Zeppelin, and uh, Jimmy Page got his his bow out for his uh, viola or, or whatever he played, that big bow he had. And he was playing his guitar like a, a violin. And I thought, this is pretty, this is pretty good. You know, it sounded pretty good. And But they didn't have the uh, excitement factor that we had. Wow. So what did you think after that then? I mean, you, you've been taken off for, for being too good. I mean, did that give you guys a boost in confidence, thinking that you, you, you're too good for this level or you, you should be up there? Or, or how did that feel? It felt like, we were doing what we needed to be doing. This is what we were supposed to have been doing. People's yeah. band. That's it. That's it indeed. And did you ever meet up with Zeppelin again? Was this ever discussed? Did you ever see Peter Grant again or, or any of the guys from the band? Never saw them again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> An absolute break then. There you go. Um, and not long after that, the the album Closer to Home came out. And it's an album that uh, was huge for you guys. I mean, I heard you say in an interview once it was probably your favorite Grand Funk album as well. So so why why that one? Why did you pick that one? Well, because the song Closer to Home, you know, this is during the Vietnam War. And uh, a lot of my friends out of high school got drafted and they were in that war. Uh, we lost friends to that war. And uh, and when I'm Your Captain came out, I had prayed for that song. I prayed for it, got up in the middle of the night and wrote the lyrics to it. Didn't know it was a song because I'm writing in the middle of the night a lot. Uh, some of the best songs that I would have had. My ass was too lazy and I laid there, went back to sleep because I would say, oh, I'll, I'll remember that in the morning. Uh, that's never going to happen. You got to get up right then and write it down or record it. Or, you know, back then it was cassette recorders. So anyways, I got up and I wrote the words to the song and uh, got up in the morning and I'm, I'm looking out, got horses out in the pasture. I'm on the farm. It's a nice, uh, a farmhouse built in 1891 uh, in a Michigan place. You know, it was me, man, a hundred percent. And I start playing the guitar. I have a acoustic guitar on a stand in the, and so I grab it and I start playing. And I was like, wow, that's a pretty good lick. You know, I, I think, and then I grabbed a, a C chord, but I, I went to grab a G 
and I I fell short of the G and hit the C, but it was, I think it was supposed to be because when I heard that inversion of the C and I looked at my hands making that, I went, wow, that, that chord just spoke to me. It was like magic that morning. It was either that or the coffee. And, uh, and there I, and as I'm thinking about, man, I got to remember the, that finger goes there, that finger goes, there. okay, I'm looking at this. And my mind went, those words, maybe that's the lyrics to a song. And so I went and got the words and uh, put them down on the table in front of me, hit the red button on my, my cassette recorder and wrote, or actually read the words and wrote the music as I'm reading the words. It just came together, took it to, to rehearsal that day. We worked on it. Uh, Don and Mel and myself and uh, the rest is history, man. It was uh, it was a great uh, rendition for the orchestra because Tommy Baker, the guy who was the band leader on the upbeat show in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, televised rock show, um, did all the orchestration for it. And uh, and he heard it in advance. He heard me playing the chords uh, while we were doing the upbeat show. And that and that time that we were doing the upbeat show, James Brown was on that upbeat show. <laughs> yeah, it was great. And Tommy Baker, the band leader for the upbeat show band, uh, ended up playing horn on one of uh, James Brown's tunes that day. And then as I'm showing uh, David Spiro the chords that I'm playing on, you know, closer to home, I'm playing on my messenger guitar which was kind of acoustic sounding anyways, when you didn't have it plugged into the amplifier. And Tommy Baker come over and said, man, when you get to that chorus, when you get to that outro chorus, he said, just keep going and going and going and going. And when you don't think you can do another one, give me 10 more. And I went, okay. <laughs> so we did, we did that in the studio and the rest, uh, you know, Terry Knight mixed it in, but, uh, Tommy Baker, uh, with the help of the Cleveland Symphony, put some great stuff on there and made that song what it was for our our soldiers. That was their song. It's what helped them get through the Vietnam War, the Vietnam experience, the Vietnam nightmare, and helped them to get home. And to this day, when we play it, I always dedicate it to our veterans, to the boys that, and the girls that are active duty these days because they're just like little kids, eh? Uh, you know, when you was a little kid, that was like, you do that. You, well, why do I have to do it? Because I said so. You know, it was mm -hmm. that was, we learned how to follow orders pretty early on, Paul. And, uh, and so I have a heart, I have five sons and I've got grandsons and granddaughters and, and great grandson and granddaughter. Uh, and, and so I feel for our soldiers and, uh, whether male, female, um, uh, they're following orders. They didn't invent yeah. the wars. They didn't, uh, they don't even know about the damn things, but they know they got to follow orders. They've just been 
programmed like that since they was little tiny kids and just talking then a little bit again about the album i mean one of the, the famous stories from that is the um the billboard in times square i mean it, it's it's a funny story to, to to think back um was it the, the guys that used to put it up they went on strike so the the, the advertisement for your your album stayed up there for, for much longer than was uh, originally anticipated didn't yes. it? yes it stayed up for like four months uh <laughs> the first month we paid for it was $50,000 to put that thing up there. So wow. we got $150,000 worth of advertisement for free. <laughs> <laughs> and we like that price. That's a good price indeed. Um, yeah. Another big thing to touch on is, is Shea Stadium. I mean, for us in the UK, it's synonymous with the Beatles. But you guys, the, the Grand Funk Railroad, you guys sold it out quicker than the Beatles, quicker than the Fab Four. I mean, right. what's your memories of that experience? Well, the, the memories are uh, flying over the stadium in a helicopter and watching it, Paul. Physically, it's flexing. The fans have got this thing rocking. Humble Pie's on stage, which was yeah. set up at second base, and Shea Stadium was like a half circle. Eh? It, it focused right on second base, so every voice... In that stadium, 55,000 people, when they hollered, it came right to your ears. And uh, wow, what a, as I'm telling you this, I'm getting goosebumps right now. Every time I that recall that, and I, I hash it over in my mind, that memory just overwhelms me. Yeah. Wow. A lot of love. Man, a lot yeah. of love. I bet, I bet. And what was it like being on the stage? Because I remember that the Beatles said that they could hardly hear themselves, let alone anything else. So what was it like for you guys? Well, for us, we had a PA system. <laughs> we had a hell of a PA system. And the fans could hear the drums, the bass, the guitar. I mean, we we had a massive PA system. And the communication between the audience and the, the band was on. And I am fueled by the emotional waves that hit the stage from the audience. You know, they, they push you to greater heights than, than you could ever achieve on your own. So it's that love, man, that love was just lifting me up. And I, it felt like I was three feet above the deck, the whole show, just floating around up there. <laughs> Phenomenal. And you mentioned Humble Pie there. I'm a huge fan of, of Steve yeah. Marriott. I mean, him, even with the, the small faces, was was an incredible character, yeah. fantastic front man. I mean, you toured with them in Europe, didn't you? So was it you guys that said, hey, come and play America with us? That's right. And they listened to, uh, they had a big boom box that they would plug in in their dressing room. And we could hear them over there rocking to all the R&B and, you know, and all the Motown stuff that we heard. That's what we were raised on in Detroit and in Flint, Michigan, because uh, uh, you know, CKLW uh, in Windsor, Ontario, that was a big, it was like a 50,000 watt AM station. And back then, Paul, all that, all that music was played on AM. FM kind of came on the scene in 1970 and 71, it just kind of merged as uh, a medium to play music. And when they first came on, the DJs, you could hear them up there going, 
<laughs> and, and they would play I'm your captain, all these other cuts. And and later on in life, as I've been doing, going to radio stations, doing interviews and, you know, shaking howdy, thanking them for playing my music, uh, they would say, Mark, thank you for I'm your captain. Because if we could, if we had to take a dump or we had to get a coffee or smoke a cigarette or get a sandwich, we could get it all done during that song. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love it. Absolutely fantastic. And we have to touch on another big hit as well, especially the ones we know here in the UK. I mean, uh, we're an American band. It was the first single to go to number one for you guys. Now, obviously, yes. before this point, you'd had hits, you'd had uh, platinum albums, multi-platinum albums. But this one was your first big number one single. I mean, how did that feel when that one topped the charts? Well, it was great because uh, it was saying something. You know, our publicist at the time, and she was, she was actually... Uh, like co-management with the with Andy Cavalieri, her name Lynn Goldsmith. She she came to the band. She says, "You guys need to do a song that that talks about who you are. You're an American band." It was actually her that triggered the song, and then Brewer came with the lyrics and and two note guitar chords to to uh, sing it to us. And but as he's singing it, I'm hearing, you know, I'm hearing this stuff, and I and so I I say to him, well, listen, I can hear this, and I played it, and he goes, yeah, man, that's it, that's really it, that's rocking, and uh, and I then I said, well, this song has got to have a cowbell, and Brewer goes, I don't have a cowbell. I said, well. You need to get a cowbell, you know, because this this song really needs a cowbell. I said, just think of all the hit songs with cowbells in them. This one really could be something. And he says, okay, I'll stop and I'll pick one up on the way to rehearsal. I said, pick six of them up and we'll pick the best one that matches the tone of the chords that we're playing during this song. So he brought a bunch of cowbells in the next day and we picked one and it and it was the right one for that song and uh and the drum intro on that i could hear that in my head as he was playing and showing us the song that he wanted to to hear i'm i'm thinking man it's got to start with a drum beat intro and and you know launch this song uh and and i told him what i heard and and i actually taught him how to play I couldn't sit down there and play it myself because I'm not a drummer, but I could hear that song. I could hear the beat and I said, it's gotta be this. So uh, I had a lot to do with that song as far as the construction of it, but Don Brewer wrote the words and uh, any other song that was a co-write with Brewer and myself on the, on these albums, it was him lyrics, me music. So when the song uh, we got done recording the song at Criteria in in Miami uh, Beach, Florida. The brewer came to me and he says, "Mark, I've never had a hundred percent right credit on any songs. Do you mind if I take it on this?" And I go, "No, nah, go ahead. Yeah, because I'm a nice guy, and I'm going to remain a nice guy. I don't care how bad I get screwed. I just got that's a lesson in forgiveness. I, I'm learning how to do it." 
<laughs> absolutely oh incredible incredible um just a quick question as well i mean you guys were a three-piece for, for so long but you became a, a four-piece didn't you craig frost joined the group yes and i heard an, another interview saying that at the time you weren't best pleased with that you thought you should have stayed as a three-piece is that right i wanted to keep it three-piece but i found out later uh, brewer's motives for wanting four-piece was so that he could write more music and him and craig frost ended up penning a few songs together. Someone else to touch on, Frank Zappa. I mean, you guys worked with him on on an album. I mean, what what did he bring to to the recording process then? I mean, because he's obviously an incredible musician, very talented, but very off the wall as well. So, what did he bring to to that album and to you guys in the recording studio? Yes, off the wall. <laughs> <laughs> he he told us what sold him on working with us was when. He came into the recording studio, which was out in the woods. We called it the swamp. It was on some land that I owned there. And uh, the the corridor, the, when you open up the double door to the studio, it was a big, wide, uh, you know, corridor so that you could get equipment, amplifiers and what have you. Nice, wide doors. He opened it up, and there was Craig, the keyboard player, and he had a hold of, he reached through his legs, bent over, and he had a hold of Brewer's leg, and he was farting on Brewer's thigh. <laughs> and, and Zappa threw up his hands. He says, I'm in the right place. Okay, I know I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> that sold him on working with us. Oh, honestly. So what did he bring to, to, to the musical side of it all then? Because obviously he was he was very keen on doing different things, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, he he's his uh, take and and the way he made that music breathe, it had a nature to it that uh, you know. And besides the fact, we didn't use a click track. Okay, no click track ever, ever. It was all, all of our music was played to. Brewer either getting excited about something and rushing it or laying back. It always had a map that it was following, but it never followed the clock. And that's that's the biggest difference I see in the music of our era and the music that is cut, you know, since the, the 80s. Everybody started putting a click track and you're playing to a freaking clock, dude. You're not playing to a drummer who's a human being who has, you know, tempo problems or it, it's not a problem. I mean, shit, you're supposed to flow and, you know, get excited and maybe rush it a little bit in that part or maybe even play louder during this part. You know, uh, that's that's human. But to play to a clock and it's got everything got too damn, uh, you know, critical. Yeah, oh, we got to do it and and everything. And now you can correct if you made a mistake. It's okay. We have this pitch thing that'll bring your voice right in tune. It, you could sing like shit and it'll be okay because we can fix that. You know? <laughs> yeah, very different, very different. Uh, we've spoken about some big stars and another big star I hope you don't mind touching on is, is Jimi Hendrix. I mean... He oh, became good friends yeah. of yours, but I remember, again, another story you told once of, of being starstruck on meeting him. Can you, can you remember that? Yes. 
we played the Fillmore East in New York City. And when I got off the stage, our manager, Terry Knight, was leading the way up back up to the dressing room. And he never led the way to the dressing room prior to that night. And I, I thought it was kind of funny that he was up in front of us. He usually followed us. So he went up and he opened my dressing room door. And I went, I went to step in there and here's Jimmy. He had his hat on, you know, he had this shit eating grin on his face. Like, how you doing kid? And I just went up to him and I, the most intelligent thing I could come up with to say was, you're a great guitar player. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I, I got to know him after that. We had been on several festivals together and we hung out and talked and, and we didn't talk music. We just talked life. Yeah. We talked fishing. We talked, you know, uh, growing up. And uh, what a great guy he was and what a tragic, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that he had to leave the way he did. And so early, man, so early, he was just a young guy. But what talent he had to make that guitar cry, to make it sing, to make it talk and make a statement, to make it protest, man. Nobody has had that kind of ability since. There's no one could touch him. No one can. He was just, he was a gift, man. He was a gift from God. And now he's back with God. <laughs> Absolutely. And you're saying how devastating it was. Can you remember when you found out about his, his sad passing? Yeah. And I just, I cried because I was just getting to know him real good and i just thought man that lovely beautiful soul because we had talked about playing music together he loved my voice you know i said i, I told him what it, you know i learned all my shit just listening to you and he uh he told me i had a wonderful voice we should do something together and so I don't know what we would have done, but uh, it was good to think of it and, and sad to think that we no longer had that opportunity. When he left, it was, wow. Wow, I couldn't even believe it. I, I had a hard time uh, just letting go of him. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Uh, and somebody else I'd like to touch on quickly, if you don't mind, uh, another legend you've worked with, uh, Ringo Starr. You were part of the, the all-star band, I mean, for, was it 94, 95 sort of time? I mean, what was your memories of that? 95, and it was another educational run for yours truly. <laughs> Being around uh, accomplished uh, peers in the music industry, and uh, and being around Ringo because he was just a, a a wonderful person, and and I could see where uh, when he went on YouTube and put that thing out, I'm not gonna sign anything ever again. Don't send me anything. I'm over it. Don't. Uh, I'm. You know, he was just tired of being 
plagued by every, because, uh, you know, he put the hat on. He could put the baseball hat on and sunglasses, go outside. He looks like Ringo with a baseball hat and sunglasses on. He, he There was no disguise in him. And, uh, and he was constantly plagued by people who wanted to get his autograph. Even flying over to Japan, we were up in first class and, and uh, people would come up. The kids came up from coach and they got papers and pens and they, Mr. Ringo, can you please sign? And he, he was over it, man. I, I saw that at that point in his life, he didn't want that kind of access. He didn't want people having that access to him. He, he couldn't be free uh, like a normal human being. Um, and even when we got to Japan, um, we were all doing this press conference and there was a big table that we were setting on on stage. And we all had chairs. We're sitting there. And this young gal came up and she said, I would like to ask Mr. Finer question. And I stood up and I said, yes, honey, what, what would you like to ask me? And she said, what is it like working with Beetle? And I said, well, let me tell you something, honey. Ringo puts his pants on one leg at a time, just like I do. And he gets up because he was in the center, kind of like the Last Supper, like Christ and all the disciples. <laughs> well, here's Ringo and all the band members. He gets up. Thank you, brother. And he comes over and he gives me a big hug because I recognized him for being just a man, a man. And that uh, that was that was like a very enlightening moment for, for me. I, I then had a good grip on why he was so adamant about not signing things and not even wanting to. The desire had left him long ago. And anyone, I don't care who you are, anyone that was pestered that much would feel the same damn way. Absolutely. And just talking about that, that experience, I mean, who, who was on the, the band with you at that point? Because obviously Ringo puts together some incredible uh, mixes of, of musicians and things like that. So who, who was around the band at the same time as you? Well, Felix Cavalieri from the Rascals, mm -hmm. Randy Bachman from BTO and uh, guess who? Uh, we had Billy Preston on keyboards, a virtuoso keyboardist singer john entwistle on bass guitar <laughs> zach starkey the monstrous drummer uh you know ringo had called me the day uh after that i uh accepted you know going into the all-star band ringo called me from monaco and he said you know i'm not the drummer on this tour and mm -hmm. i said oh you're not well then who is he said, my son, Zach. And I thought, oh, yeah, I heard about Zach already. He can lay down the law. And he sure enough did. Uh, so <laughs> with the, him and Mark Rivera, Mark Rivera played uh, guitar, sang, did saxophone, did uh, percussion on the congas. Uh, what a great uh, addition to any band uh, Mark Rivera would be bunch of guys great guys and i learned how to play the chords from the people who
who invented them. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic stuff. Now, uh, it's been a fantastic pleasure speaking with you, Mark. I mean, at the moment, you're, you're still out and about on tour, on the roads, touring with uh, Mark Farner's American band. I've seen on your website, you've got dates in, in April, March, May, things like that. I mean, you're still going out on stage and still enjoying the, the thrill of playing this music yes. to an audience like that. Yes, it's I'm alive, brother. And I have appreciation for those fans uh, who made me who I am. I'm not uh, lifting myself up in any way. I don't have to because they are lifting me up, brother. Yeah. I'm telling you, uh, it's a it's a humbling thing to take the stage uh, in front of that many adoring fans who just love my ass. Seriously. They love my ass because I said something in a song that they agreed with and they've been uh, agreeing with ever since uh, back 1969. It's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant stuff. And in terms of everything else, I mean, what are you up to for the rest of the year? I mean, what, what do you have plans? What do you do when you're not out touring? Well, I do. Uh, I've been fishing with my wife. We've been out ice fishing. We were in winds the other day that lifted the ice shanty up. We were sitting on the bench seat in there <laughs> and the wind blew. We always put your back into the wind. So the, but it's like having a little sail out there on the ice. And I didn't have anchors as guys will drill anchors into the, the ice and tie the, their sleds off or their coops. They, we call them, they'll tie it off to those anchors, but, I didn't have any, but I still wanted to fish. So we were in there fishing. We're catching perch. And all of a sudden, both of our asses came up in the air like, whoa. And I went, oh, my God, we got to get out of here. <laughs> so it was quick. We packed up th through everything. It, it was it was snowing and blowing so hard. When you look to see the shore, it was not there. It was just a snowstorm. So uh, it was kind of sketchy, but my wife, Lisa, uh, she's she's got good eyes. And she said, we got to go this way up towards. I just saw a blue house up there when it was a little clearing. We got to go this way. So we went up there and got and we got out and we went home and cleaned the fish and had a perch dinner. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that's what I love doing, being outside. We plant a garden every year. We have organic non uh uh, GMO seeds, non-GMO anything, all organic heirloom variety stuff. And we're really into eating healthy and non-GMO. Man, for us, we can't even think about going back. Now, I'm, I'll am i be 75 this year. I don't take any medicine. Wow. On zero. I went to the dentist the other day and and they on on the questionnaires, what kind of medicine you think? Zero, 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 zero. He says, "Wow, you're you're almost seventy five, and you ain't taking any medicine." I say, "Hell no, I don't want to be on. You know, let your food be your medicine, and your medicine be your food." A great way to live by. Well, you stay safe when you're out there fishing, uh, Mark. Next time, and uh, absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for telling me all your stories. Thanks, brother Paul. Good to be here with you. If I don't see you in the future, I'll see you in the pasture. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. And a big thanks to the wonderful Mark Farner for sharing his stories there.
Right, it's the time of the show now where I give you my top five, and you're going to get my top five songs from Grand Funk Railroad, of course. Now, remember, it's my personal choice, and I'd love to hear how you agree or disagree with the list. So let's see what you think of these, then. My favourite five songs from Grand Funk Railroad. At five is the opening track to their album E Pluribus Funk. It's a fast, high-energy, fun, upbeat track, and to be honest, the name says it all. At number five is Foot Stomping Music. At number four is a cover that they stamp their style all over. Originally by The Animals, Grand Funk put this on their second album and it became their only top 40 hit here in the UK. At number four is Inside Looking Out. At number three is a track most would call the Magnum Opus. It's an epic at nearly 10 minutes long that Mark wrote with Vietnam very much in mind. From the album of the same name, at number three is I'm Your Captain Closer to Home. My number two is the opening track on their third studio album. It's a monster, loud and heavy, riff-laden song that brings a touch of soul in it too. Number two is Sin's a Good Man's Brother. And at number one for me is the band's first number one hit in 1973, produced by Todd Rundgren. It appeared on the album of the same name. It's another rip roarer, a proper anthem, which is why it appears in VH1's top 100 hard rock songs of all time. My number one song favourite from Grand Funk Railroad is We're an American Band. So there you go, my top five songs from Grand Funk Railroad. As always, I'd love to hear what you think. What's your favourite track of theirs? Message me on the social media platforms or you can email me vintagerockpod at gmail.com and I'll give you a mention on next week's show. And remember, check out Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube for all the Vintage Rock Pod latest. Well, that's it for me and this week's big interview show. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app so that you get all your episodes that are released every single day. And I'll be back tomorrow with another of those This Day Rocks. So until then, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 